Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We are on the Blog Talk Radio Network and distributed worldwide by great companies like iHeartMedia, Apple, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and brought to you in part by your friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. So if you're an event planner or a platform speaker, get together and find one another at SpeakerMatch.com. Well, 2020 certainly changed an awful lot of things, not the least of which was the speaking industry, but also changed uh, the way that people buy almost anything. And so we're bringing in an expert on consumer spending and consumer habits. Michael Solomon is a professor of marketing at St. Joe in Philly. He's written over 30 books. The latest is The New Chameleons. Michael, welcome to the show and tell us what was the biggest change in consumer habits in uh, in the pandemic era. Hey, Burke, thanks for having me on. Um, the biggest change, well, I guess I guess uh, elbow bumps don't count. Right? <laughs> I don't know how much you pay for those. <laughs> uh, you know what I what I like to say, as you can imagine, I've been getting a lot of questions for the last year or so about you know what's going to be the new normal, how are people changing, et cetera. And, um, you know, one, one of my answers is that actually not much has changed due to the pandemic. What the, the pandemic didn't change a lot of things. What it did was to accelerate changes that were already happening. So, for example, you may, you may recall even before we had this awful pandemic, we, people were talking about something called the retail apocalypse. How about that? And, um, you know, the, basically the end of in-store retailing and the move to online, et cetera. And, um, you know, we had a lot of big, big retailers going out of business and, and so on. Uh, then, we hit, then we have the pandemic and a lot of people who were resistant to going online to buy stuff, you know, maybe they like the interaction with their local merchant, et cetera, uh, start to discover that, you know, in some ways it's not so bad, you know, for example, grocery shopping, why can't I just order, you know, sit in my pajamas at home and order the groceries rather than making the trek to the store. So there's a good example, uh, the, the, the growth of automation in retail. There's a good example of something that was already starting to happen, but was getting, a fair amount of pushback. You know, some people are pretty concerned, as they probably should be, about some of the ethical aspects of, uh, you know, eliminating jobs and and having to talk to a machine, et cetera. But what we find now is that many more consumers are now that they were forced to try a new way to do something, have said, you know what, that's not so bad. And even though I'm maybe I'm vaccinated, I'm still going to continue to do that. So. Uh, so the, the move toward automation at the storefront is is one example of a big development we've seen in the last couple of years. But again, the pandemic didn't cause it. The pandemic just threw fuel on the fire. So it accelerated things. Uh, Michael, you get asked, I'm sure, a lot about consumer behavior and retailing and fashion and branding. Um, is this, in your opinion, is this the death knell to to Main Street USA and to small business, or can can small business and retailers innovate their way out of this? Well, I, I hope they can, and I and I do think they can. You know, uh, the the death of stores has been pronounced a number of times. You know, and I think you know the obituary is a bit premature because. One of the things we saw in you know, one of the, I guess, the silver lining during all of this is, is the amazing innovation 
that many people have shown, you know, as they're pivoting to this new online lockdown world. And and retailers are no are no exception. You know, they're going to find new ways to deliver to deliver what they sell. But there's an important caveat, and that is that, uh, you know, I think one of the other changes that the pandemic accelerated is the recognition that we don't need to go to stores to buy stuff. We go to stores for other purposes. We go to stores to be entertained, to be educated, to be stimulated, to be challenged. The stores that just view themselves as a place where people come to pick up merchandise are the ones that are going to be history because they're not providing any value added. They're not providing an additional incremental reason for someone to you know, to put on, actually put on clothes, get get off of that, get out of those sweatpants, get in the car, do all those things just to go to a store and buy the same stuff that they could have had delivered. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of stores that still haven't figured that out, uh, you know, will continue to go under. But but the ones that are innovative and understand that what people are buying is an experience rather than just the merchandise, they're going to prevail. So I think you know one one of my favorite examples is REI, you know the uh, outdoor company. Right. And they, you know, they they actually have they created a position called I, I think it's something like the vice president of consumer experience or customer experience. And so they recognize that you can you know you can order a camping stove or a, or a poncho or something online very easily. What's going to get people into a store? Well, we're going to Maybe we'll build a rock climbing wall in the store so people can check out the products or maybe they can wear that poncho under an actual rain shower, you know, simulated in the store to see if it actually keeps away moisture. Uh, Or maybe they're going to go away on a camping trip for a weekend with people who actually work at that store and they can show them how the products, uh, you know, really function in the wild. So, uh, you know, there are other examples in in other categories, but uh, but. It's the retailers who get this, I, I think, that are, are going to have a pretty bright future. After all, the economy, at least for now, is booming. People want to buy stuff. Um, and, and the social, you know, the social aspects of shopping are not going to just go away. That, they, that provides a tremendous benefit to many people. Some people hate the experience, um, but, but plenty of people love it. So I'm not seeing the death of small business anytime soon, but don't rest on your laurels and remember it's the it's the businesses large and small that were able to pivot during the last year and a half that are coming out on top now, not the ones that just sat there with their you know head in the sand. Michael Solomon is our guest today, he joins us from uh, St. Joe in Philadelphia. He's a professor of marketing there. His latest book is The New Chameleons. And I remember several years ago, Michael, I was traveling uh, for business and I'd ordered a jacket. Uh, online. First time I'd ever done that before, a suit jacket. And um, uh, I'm a big guy. So, uh, you know, it was a, a casual suit jacket and I ordered it as an extra large. And uh, when it came, it came from China. And most folks apparently in China are not the same extra large as folks from uh, from where I'm from <laughs> in the Midwest. <laughs> and so I thought, hmm, I, I learned a lesson there about about trying on clothes. This is something that I think a lot of people probably were ahead of me on and the curve. But what other types of businesses can you see where that experiential thing will will never go away? Uh, certainly there are people in the, the buggy whip business and the uh, the typewriter and the whiteout business yeah. that, that wish they would have innovated. But are there other things uh, like your camping example you think that are, are going to rely on that experiential uh, experience for co- uh, consumers? 
Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, I've got an old typewriter somewhere I can sell you if you're interested. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> but, you know, when, when you think about it, there are so many products and services that that are, you know, have a performance, so to speak, built into it. And and by the way, that's true for grocery, which I already mentioned. Even though more people are ordering online, you, you have some chains uh, like we have Wegmans here in the, in the Northeast, for example, um, that, you know, that really try to create more of an experience in the store. So in, anything that involves food or drink, you know, certain, whether it's wine or beer or, or what have you, uh, educational products, um, you know, home decorating where you can have maybe, uh, you know, a contest who, for who, who designs the best kitchen, kind of, you know, a simulation uh, that's similar to the HGTV shows that my wife has on 26 hours a day. <laughs> um, you know, there, if, you, if you think about it, there are so many things that, that involve more than the transfer of just of just a physical product. In fact, literally everything does. If you think about some of the more traditional ones, like say an automobile, much of what you're buying is the experience of driving that car or being able to brag to people that you're driving it, whatever. Um, very relatively little of it is the transportation aspect, you know, getting from point A to point B. We, we always want to have positive experiences. And we, in fact, we've seen an explosion, I think, you know, in the last five, 10 years, uh, on, on an emphasis on the customer experience, sometimes called CEX. And there's there's tons of conferences and books coming out talking about the importance of the customer experience. That's not going to go away. It's going to become even more important. But remember that you can also deliver some of those experiences online. Uh, and that technology is getting better and better every day. So, you know, there are things you can do online uh, whether you're going into virtual worlds or maybe you're wearing a virtual reality helmet or using augmented reality there, there are technological solutions, maybe not to a hundred percent, you know, uh, in-person experience, but coming pretty close that are going to be quite exciting. And, and again, the, the lockdown has accelerated all of that as anybody who spent any time on zoom this week can testify. (laughs) Michael Solomon is our guest today as we talk about uh, consumer behavior and branding in this new era as we come out of the pandemic. You can check out his columns at uh, Forbes, Forbes Forbes.com. How much, though, uh, does customer service really matter, Michael? And and I will tell you, I'm a customer service nut. it's, It's become so difficult to find it that I really appreciate it. But when you look at the raw numbers, and I'll give you an example just from my neighborhood, we have a a McDonald's and a Chick-fil-A, and they both seem to be very busy. Clearly, Chick-fil-A is known for their great customer service. McDonald's, not so much, but those drive-thrus at both restaurants seem to be humming along. So how much does it really matter, or does it matter more in people's minds than it does at the end of the day when it comes to the P&L statement? Well, I think it. I think it matters an enormous amount. Uh, you know, fast food. There may be other variables going on there, and I can tell you, in, in in urban areas, for example, here in Philadelphia, we we've had a lot of fast food places actually close because there's just too many of them, and people aren't just aren't uh, you know shopping that way anymore. But in general. What we have is, and this makes managers crazy, uh, what we have is, is a condition that I call brand parity. And, and what that means is when you, very often when you talk to actual consumers and, you, you know, let's say you have some 
product, whether it's shoes or perfume or whatever, um, you line up three or four or five of the top competitors in that industry and you say to them, which one is the best? Very often what they'll say is, you know what? They're all pretty good. Now that makes if if you're a manager or you know a brand branding person for one of those alternatives that Make makes you crazy. Me nuts. Uh, but that but that is the reality of it. And so uh, that you know competitive differentiation comes not these days not so much from the product as it does from the delivery of the product. You know, look at Netflix for example. Why are they so successful today? Well, they figured out there was a different way to deliver the same content, and so. Delivering that content in a customer-friendly way, you know, and and you alluded to the fact that you don't see it too much. So when when you do, it really stands out. You know, that is a big big problem, uh, especially now as companies are scrambling, as you know, to hire people. The problem is that, especially at retail, think about a big department store, and you've got a lot of these salespeople around who. And again, there are exceptions, but frankly, most of them don't know as much about what they're selling as the customers do. Um, you know, ironically, you've got you've got billion dollar operations and their fortunes are resting on the lowest paid people in the organization. Same thing with the fast food as you know that you were talking about. So you can have this tremendous operation, amazing merchandising, beautiful store. And then you have, you know, a, a 20 year old clerk who who totally, you know, is rude or whatever. All all of that investment just goes away because the, the, the least qualified person in the organization may be the one who's directly interacting with the customer. And that has got to stop because we do have so many other alternatives, you know, it. That, you know, in the old days, well, if you didn't, you know, if a salesperson was rude to you, you went to the other to the next store. Well, today, where are you going to go? You're going to just go online, you know, who needs any of that? So, again, the value added is that customer experience, but that can take many, many different forms. You know, in some cases, it's just common courtesy that we that we want. And in other cases, you know, we'd be really grateful for some expert advice. And that's interesting. The expert advice piece, I, you know, I, I like your example of. Uh, of the the young clerk that really knows so little about the product. And I think about, uh, and, and this will make me sound a thousand years old, but I'm going to put it out there, the experience of going into an independent bookstore or a generation ago, going into the neighborhood record shop. And the, you know, the, the bookseller at the independent store will know exactly what kind of books you like to read and he'll steer you or she'll steer you in the right direction. The same with a generation ago with the, the record store owner who would say, oh, you know, you you really like the Beatles. Well, let me turn you on to this new group that you might also like uh, called Badfinger. And they produced that band and they have a Beatlesque sound. Um, the AI is becoming so strong. The artificial intelligence online is becoming so strong to point you in that direction. Do you see a time when when it's the consumer experience will actually be better completely when you shop online than when you do it in person? Well, that's a great question. First of all, what is a record store? I'll show you a picture uh, on my uh, oh, my Polaroid okay. that I spit well, out of the you camera. You know what? I'm I'm probably older than you are, so I, I do remember them very yeah. fondly. <laughs> um, but 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 anyway, yeah. I mean, in in a way, what you're describing, well, what you're describing is the rationale for the internet and for search engine marketing and so on, which is that we're optimizing your experience. You're not getting options that aren't as relevant because the more we know about you, 
the more we can tailor our recommendations to you. And that, and that's extremely powerful. The, the downside of that is what we are all living with, which is that many of us are living in what, what one author, not me, but one author called a filter bubble or an internet bubble, which means that as your recommendations get so tailored, you know, to use your example, you're only going to, you're going to get the Beatles, Badfinger, you know, maybe you'll get the Stones. I, I don't know. But, but the problem is if we only get um, suggestions based on what we looked at before, we're eliminating that serendipity that I think you were referring to at the old bookstore or record store, where you come across something that's not related to stuff that you've read or listened to before. And that kind of variety is, is truly valuable because if we don't get it, we're all just going to be listening to, you know, one type of music or reading one point of view in, in books, et cetera. So uh, I think AI is, is definitely very exciting. It's got a lot of potential, but I'd like to see them build in a little more serendipity, like, you know, with Amazon, you know, says, oh, you know, because you read this, you might want to read this. Well, throw in some choices that are not similar. And I think you'll have maybe even more engaged customers. Our guest is Michael Solomon on the Big Time Talkers podcast powered by Speaker Match. Visit him online at michaelsolomon.com. And that's what I did before we, we spoke. And I saw this neat video you have on the homepage about uh, you are what you buy and you buy what you are. What do you mean by that exactly? You know, uh, for most of us, we don't give a lot of thought to the routine stuff that we buy. I'm not talking about that latest Lamborghini that you have in your driveway. You know, I'm talking about basic stuff. But the reality is that even basic stuff, you know, brands, uh, clothing brands, music, all, all of the things that we consume, the foods we like, the, the things we like to drink are, are really a part of our identity. And they actually um, they actually help structure who we are and who we're not. In other words, if you and I are, are doing or have chosen to, to buy the same thing, there's somehow a bond between us. It's like many of your listeners have had the experience. You pull up to a stoplight and you look over and there's somebody in the car next to you. It's the exact same car as yours. And you, you're naturally curious, you know, who else would buy this car in this color? Uh, you might be disappointed, you know, who, who, it, who it is, but we, but we tend to form those bonds, you know, based on consumption. And, you know, and there are some reasons for that, that, you know, that are a reflection of our society and, and modern culture, et cetera. But the the important thing is that we, we, we do buy what we are because that's how we express ourselves. And, you know, when I talk about in my latest book, The New Chameleons, I talk about how how brands really are used, especially by younger people, in a very different way than they were by uh, by former generations, because brands are still extremely important. But young people are more proactively assembling a unique kind of palette of brands that to express their identity. Some of those brands will be the very well-known ones. Others might be startups or very obscure. But, uh, you know, some people say, well, young people, you know, they don't believe in branding and marketing anymore. I, I don't really believe that's true. I think, I think as long as you can show them that your brand understands their values, it's an expression of who they are, that's how people are using brands today. So it's not just... Uh, it's not just casual choices. You know, I've done research on everything from blue jeans to perfume. And, and I can tell you that that uh, very often the brands that we choose are, are 
are very much tied up with how we think about ourselves. The new book is The New Chameleons. And, and let me ask you about, and by the way, if you're just joining us, Michael Solomon is our guest today. And this is a guy that, that uh, has written over 30 books. Uh, and he's sort of the go-to guy at Forbes and a whole bunch of other places on consumer insights and customer engagement, uh, fashion psychology. Are there brands or parts of brands that are somewhat timeless? And, and I'll give you an, an example uh, I work with many people who are younger than me. And if we're all lucky enough to get to a certain age, that's going to happen. Most folks that are younger than me never leave a voicemail. And if you leave a voicemail for them, they will never answer it if they have their voicemail set up. Uh, many younger people prefer, heavily prefer, to engage via text uh, as opposed to having a, a you know a one-on-one -on -one conversation and looking someone in the eye and a firm handshake. A am I just uh, a Luddite, a thousand-year-old guy who thinks that a, uh, a handshake, a firm handshake and, and looking someone in the eye or, or leaving a message for someone if you can't reach them yeah. uh, is, is sort of a timeless quality? Or is it all changing around us? Is it all shifting yeah. sands and we just need to adapt? Well, we certainly always need, need to adapt. You know, when every generation has its own way of communicating, um, you know, for older people, you know, as you say, it's it's probably email or, or even an actual phone conversation. God forbid, um, you know, this generation, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, when we train we train students to be salespeople, some of them to be salespeople, uh, to call on doctors, for example, you know, pharmaceutical reps, et cetera. What what we find is that most students absolutely will not you know they don't want to talk to someone in person they only want to text so it's the same experience and a lot of sales organizations really need to figure this out um now you know when the in the next generation hopefully you and i'll be around to see it i'm sure we'll see a different form of communication and texting will be considered obsolete uh, but certainly at any point in time and when you talk about technology like voicemail you know that's changing so rapidly that it's it's almost out of control, you know, or it could get out of control if we're not careful. Uh, having said that, there are certain brands that are timeless. Um, you know, many brands come and go, but when when you look at the at the top, let's say ten brands at the beginning of the twentieth century, and you look at those at that same list today, you'll see that many of those brands are still on the list. Give me some examples. So Who's still uh, around? Uh, I think like, well, like General Motors, you know, uh, Hershey's, Dove, Dove is definitely one of them, uh, Campbell's Soup. You know, these are these are iconic brands. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're immune, you know, from going under because we have had brands that have done that. Um, but brand loyalty, you know, it, that's the holy grail. And it's not so easy, especially today. People are probably less brand loyal than they've ever been. But. If you can cultivate that, you know, a following, uh, you know, we talk about something called the 80-20 rule. I think it's extremely important for your listeners. It has some different applications. In marketing, one application is we say that 80% that of your revenues come from 20% of your customers as a, as a very rough rule of thumb. What that means is you've got a hardcore group of people, numerically not that impressive, but these are your diehard customers, and they are going to do whatever they can to keep your brand going for a long time. So 
one of the biggest mistakes that I see companies making, either big or small, is that they're so focused on acquiring new customers that they ignore the fact that their existing customers are their best, you know, not only their best source of revenue, but their best salespeople because they are going to be the evangelists for the company. So the brand, the brands that are that continue to be strong or know how to cultivate that core group. Uh, Harley Davidson is a good example of that when they sponsor these road rallies and so on. Uh, so yeah, I, brands can be, well, timeless is a bit, you know, is a bit uh, of a stretch probably, but certainly a, a solid brand can last for 50 years, a hundred years, but it still has to make changes. For example, in its packaging, gradual changes over time. You know, if you if you looked at what Betty Crocker looked like in 1910 or something like that, and you look at what Betty Crocker looks like today, they are very different women. But over the years, they've slowly changed Betty Crocker's features actually to be more Hispanic to represent the, uh, the American population a bit better. So the successful brands often make small changes that don't throw people off. You know, if you, uh, you I, well, I know you're old enough to remember the great Coke fiasco from the 1980s. Oh yeah, where the they changed Coke. their form. You know, they what they did was they took they took an, an iconic brand that had taken a hundred years to build, and almost decimated it overnight. Uh, they were able to recover, but but that that just shows you when when people come to you know form a bond with a brand. And there are different ways to form those bonds, but it's so important to form that bond. If you make changes, you have to take into account your customer's willingness to accept those changes. But there are different ways to bond with brands. Uh, I I talk about them um, in in my latest book and, and elsewhere, what we call brand resonance, you know, where a brand really becomes a part of who you are. Uh, whether it's Nike or Apple or Lululemon, you know, some of these brands that have six, at least for now, they're timeless because uh, because they have connected with where people are going in their lives. Lululemon's a great example. And so for folks that, that are not familiar with that company, tell me about Lululemon. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I assume they were everywhere, but they may not be. It's a very successful, basically yoga-based uh, retailer, but... Uh, you know, legions of, especially of young women, as we see here in Philadelphia, you know, everybody's wearing their yoga tights on the street. It's, uh, you know, we have what was called athleisure, which is a whole new category. And they were one of the companies that single-handed, almost single-handedly created that trend, or at least jumped onto that trend. And they saw it coming. So the, the point is that for a brand to keep itself alive, The worst thing you can do is rest on your laurels and say, look at us. We're so wonderful because five years from now, the culture could change and you could be, you know, you could be out in the cold. We're talking with Michael Solomon about consumer behavior, consumer spending, uh, branding, retailing. And and along those lines, uh, there are certain brands that no matter how many decades they've been in business or how much has been invested in them, um, there comes a time when they have to make that difficult decision. I think about uh, the cultural flack that came up uh, around uh, Aunt Jemima syrup, pancake syrup, or Uncle Ben's rice, or uh, I don't know if you remember, but back in the uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, there was a diet uh, uh, supplement that was called AIDS. And of course, when the AIDS epidemic swept across right. the world, that was the end of that. 
Do you ever uh, do any sort of futurist looks at, at some brands and go, man, I wouldn't want to be in that business and mm. they need to get in front of that? And, and, and as an add-on to that question, uh, you know, are there times where you stick to your guns and you don't make a change yeah. because of, of cultural forces that are out there? Or do we all need to be ready to, to sometimes throw out the baby with the bathwater? Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, I, I mean, frankly, the examples you're using are a bit extreme because they, they, you know, embody these negative ethnic stereotypes and have really been begging to be retired for a long time. Um, so certainly if your brand has some kind of negative connotation like that, then you've got some interesting issues. You know, and I'm thinking of, I was actually just yesterday, I grew up in, in the Washington, D.C. area as a Redskins fan. And yesterday I was proudly wearing a new my new T-shirt that says the Washington football team. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, so situations like that. Yeah, it's you know, there's a cultural tsunami building. Uh, you know, we have this big discussion now about cancel culture and, and so on. Uh, sometimes you have to to totally, um, you know, retire a brand. But, ver- but very often if the brand isn't somehow culturally charged like that, it's just dated. Um, it, you know, brands have life cycles just like people do. And we talked about the product life cycle and different strategies w- that you would employ depending on whether you're a new brand or a mature brand, et cetera. Uh, in some cases, you know, there are companies out there that specialize in buying up old retired or about to be retired brands. And in some cases, re- you know, reinvigorating them. So, you know, a good example would be Altoids, you know, those mints that that everybody likes um you know that was a fairly obscure brand that was in the seattle area you know for about 100 years or or longer in coffee shops and it was on its last legs but then it was bought by a much bigger company and they pumped millions of dollars into promoting it and you can see today how successful they were so it is possible to bring a brand back from the dead but there are some times when you have to just let go. It's kind of like the grieving process where you have to say, you know what? This brand is, is finally dead. I had a guest on the show uh, a few months ago who said that uh, every one of us has our own personal brand and that we need to give it some care and feeding. What say you about that? <laughs> yeah, personal branding has become a, a huge mantra. And, and I have to say, I don't know if I take responsibility for it, but uh, uh, even in, in, in one of my textbooks, a marketing textbook that was first published in, I think, around 1992, uh, the, the first chapter that I put in there was called Brand You. And it talked about how, you know, everybody it indeed does have a personal brand. And if if you're smart, you can think about the classic marketing mix that many of your listeners probably know of, you know, the four P's price, product, promotion, and place. And, you know, that's that, those are the tools that we use to position a brand. And that, that can also apply to individuals. And and I'm not even just talking about say Beyonce or somebody like that, because they really are legitimate brands. Anyway, I'm talking about you and I, uh, you know, or, or your listeners. Yes, we are, we have a brand, Uh, And basically, it's how do we want people to think of us? You know, where can they find us? What's it going to cost them? And, you know, how are they going to hear about it? So uh, it is extremely important to be and it's important to be true to your brand. So just like brands, you know, regular brands today are having to confront issues about their values. You know, uh, Nike and the NFL, for example, Colin Kaepernick, et cetera. 
we each have to be true to our brand. So part of it is first, you, you, you can't create a brand until you know what the brand platform is. And that's true for us as individuals as well. So it's kind of like you have to go on a bit of a journey of self-exploration to decide what your competitive advantage is and what your brand, you know, what your brand should be. And then you can absolutely use some of the same techniques that marketers use to sell politicians or cans of peas or what have you uh, in the interpersonal marketplace. Michael Solomon's new book is The New Chameleons. He's a professor of marketing at St. Joe in Philadelphia. Um, I wonder, you and I talked off the air before we started. I saw your area code, and we talked about both having some experience in in the, living down in the Deep South. And in the South, on pretty much uh, every two to three miles, you'll see a Dollar General store uh, on the side of the road somewhere. And, and you know, in the Midwest, it's it's the Dollar Tree. So... How much in those four P's does pricing play into your personal brand? You know, if, if I'm trying to build a, a great personal brand, should I not go for the better price that I can get something at Dollar General or the Dollar Tree? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you get what you pay for. And we've all learned that lesson over time. And that's not a slam against these dollar stores at, at all. I'm just saying that, yeah, price is extremely important. Um, it tends to be overlooked. It tends to be an afterthought. But price is actually a part of the marketing mix, and you can change the impression a person's impression of a product by altering the price. And so, uh, for you know, in some industries, for example, jewelry, you know, typically we assume we what you're talking about is you know the old supply and demand thing. You know, if, if it's available for a dollar, I won't buy it for two dollars. Right. Uh, but that's not always true. You know, if you look in the in the luxury business like jewelry. What you what you'll see is that sometimes merchants will tell you, well, you know, we couldn't sell this necklace for a hundred dollars, but we raised the price to four hundred, and they and we couldn't keep them in the, in the store because people are using, you know, rightly or not, they're using price as a cue when they don't know much else about the product. And, Isn't that interesting? And that, and that can be dangerous because you know, again, price and quality are roughly correlated but they are not perfectly correlated so you need to know what you're buying but generally all things equal you'll go for the higher price you know if it's an important purchase to you uh, you know and, and the problem is that we've trained consumers to be more value oriented in many categories where you know when everything's on sale look at uh, macy's for example um one of the problems that they've had over the years in my opinion, is that they train their customers to assume that things, if, if, if an item is not on sale now, it will be on sale in the next month. Right. So there's, it's heavily promotional. And what that means is that when they try to sell items that are not on sale, they don't do as well because they've trained people to understand this. So, so price can, it can come back to bite you, but it, again, it's certainly a very important decision to make. And it's not necessarily just based on your cost plus a markup. There are strategic reasons in some cases to, to lower the price. If you're trying to get into a new market, for example, or in some cases to actually raise the price um, when you're trying to make the product seem more exclusive, for example. Before we wrap up, Michael, I'm going to ask you, as, as a professor of marketing, to put on your professorial crystal ball and your wizard hat, and let's uh, sort of look into the future a little bit, uh, it, because things changed so much, so dramatically 
in the last year and a half. I want to see what you think is going to happen with with some of these uh, businesses and industries and 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 consumer behaviors that that shifted and are somewhat on the bubble. So let, let's start at the top with one of my favorite things to do uh, on a lazy summer evening is to, to go to the movies. Movie theaters, are they going to be with us? Is that going to come back? Um, I think they're going to, they're going to come back, but again, even before the pandemic, we were seeing changes there. We were seeing declines in movie in movie attendance. Um, obviously, you know, people can stream at home, but what we were seeing again, you know, we were talking earlier about customer experience. Uh, you know, the, the theaters that are successful, at least in, in the region that I live in are, are the ones that offer amenities, like, you know, reclining seats and sometimes, uh, you know, food service at your seat, et cetera, things like that to make it more of a luxury viewing experience. Uh, I, I do think that they'll survive, but they're going to be probably moving into some other areas. Like, for example, I would expect to see more virtual reality activities taking taking shape at the at what used to be the local movie theater, where uh, because the technology is starting to get to the point where you can interact with other people and play and play a game, you know, say a virtual reality game where you're not, you're not just sitting at home wearing a helmet. You're actually in a world with other players. And so movie theaters, if you look at, uh, I don't know if you in there where you are, but these escape rooms where people are paying for the experience of getting out of the room, right. <laughs> right. They walked into, uh, you know, again, that's, that's kind of a group exercise. So it's not, necessarily something you just want to do online you want to go with your friends and 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 work it out so yes i think there will always be a place for mass participation in in performance of some kind but whether that performance will just be the same movie that you could see at home is another story well along those same lines what about uh live musical entertainment events you know during the pandemic many many entertainers many artists uh had to to go online and perform their shows virtually. So will virtual music and performance events continue on? Uh, and what about, you know, going to see a live show? Yeah. I, well, I, I think that live shows are not going to go away. You know, it's, again, it's very much a social experience. And it's a great example of what I'm saying, the value added. I mean, if, you know, I could go to, uh, to, to hear Jimmy Buffett, um, or I, you know, and, and be, um, and be surrounded by, you know, thousands of other parrot heads who are having a social experience, or I could sit at home and put on, I was going to say, put on the record. Well, we don't have those anymore, but <laughs> I, you know, I could sit at home and listen to an album. Um, it's not the same experience. So I think people are, are craving that, you know, they're craving that kind of social in, interaction. And, and also, again, this was pre pandemic, you know, the way the music industry is shifting uh, as is true with other content providers like you and me, for example, um, you know, it, it's it's getting harder and harder to earn a living by selling recordings. So the, already before the pandemic, the model was actually shifting the other way. You know, the way that bands are making money is using a model that actually the Grateful Dead pioneered, I believe, which is that, you know, they made a lot of their money. They They would let people record the concerts for free, but they made their money from concessions you know t-shirts and things like that and that's what a lot of performers have had to do again 
before the pandemic, you know, they were, they're starting to do more touring and, and et cetera. And book authors are the same way, you know, they're, it's getting harder and harder because of the, the used market and so on. So that's another force that I think will push people back in, into the stadiums to watch these live shows. And before the pandemic, you did a fair amount of, of public speaking. You were a platform speaker all over the country, all over the world. Uh, and then I, I, as I read up on you, saw you did a lot of that online uh, via Zoom and other technology during the pandemic. Do you see uh, uh, conferences and seminars and and rooms where people will go to, to hear other people speak uh, bounce back at the expense of, of Zoom meetings and that sort of thing? Or will they both exist? Well, I'll tell you, I just got back from my first in-person keynote in Las Vegas, and it was just amazing to be <laughs> to be standing up there and looking at a room full of people and not even wearing masks. I, I think that, you know, when people attend conferences, quite honestly, even though, you know, you, you or I might give a keynote and be brilliant, they're not there for that reason. They're there to network with others. And that is difficult. It's not impossible, but it's more difficult online. But again, having said that, it's like the grocery shopping example I used earlier. Now, you know, when a lot of conferences had to pivot to go online, they discovered that there are some advantages to it. And so what we're going to see, I think, is more of a hybrid approach where you're going to have a mixture. You're, you're still going to have a physical event, but there will be more and more um for example, well, for example, I, I did several during lockdown. I, I gave several keynotes on Zoom or other platforms to live events where where people were in hotel rooms, maybe in in Cyprus, for example. I just did one a couple of weeks ago. People were in the Hilton in downtown Cyprus. And I guess my, I was on a you know huge screen, but I didn't have to fly to Cyprus to give that to give that talk. So I I think just as in retail, we're going to see more of a hybrid model as technology gets more integrated in, into everyday processes. It's, it's not going away. There's just too many reasons not to have many meetings in person. Um, there are, some, you know, and what it means is you, then you have more time for the essential meetings that can be held in person and the essential interaction that and the benefits that come from talking to someone during the coffee break. Which so again, it sounds like that, you're telling me I should hang on to my Zoom membership, but also yeah. don't throw throw away the frequent flyer miles just yet. No, I, I I think you know we'll be doing the best of both now. This is just a new this is just a new tool in our toolkit, and the problem is you know if you get a new tool, it's like you can be what what we call a hammer in search of a nail. You know, when you get that shiny new tool, you want to do everything using that tool, and I think that initial enthusiasm for zoom and so on will has has abated a bit <laughs> <laughs> he says very politically correctly yeah. michael solomon has been our guest today on the big time talker podcast the latest book of 30 30 books is the new chameleons available at amazon.com and uh, bookstores everywhere and uh, you can visit michael online at michaelsolomon.com and and the next time you're in philadelphia stop by the campus there at st joe and he'll buy you a cheesesteak thanks for being on with us today Hey, thanks so much. And I'm going to send you the bill for all those cheesesteaks I have to be buying now. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. My connection's getting really bad with Michael <laughs> Solomon. I don't know why. Hey, thank you for listening today. Thank you to our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. <laughs>